All right. Well, we're we are uh, we're going to dive in. Uh, we have uh, this is our last week for a while in the book of Psalms. Next week we are jumping into the Gospel of Luke, and I'll uh, say more about that transition from Psalms to Luke next week as we jump into that Gospel. But this morning I want to set the stage for how we're going to step into the next Psalm in this series. If you remember. Nearly a year ago, we were in First Peter. We were just beginning First Peter. We went 27 weeks in the letter of First Peter. And there, about nearly a year ago, we were studying this passage. Here it is. First Peter, chapter 1, verse 10 and 11. I want to read this out of the New Living Translation. This salvation was something even the prophets wanted to know more about when they prophesied about the gracious salvation prepared for you. They wondered what time or situation the Spirit of Christ within them was talking about when He told them in advance about Christ's suffering and His great glory afterward. It's a very, it's, it's a thick passage. But the sum of that passage is Peter is telling these early Christians that those people in the Old Testament, those prophets, they were writing things. They were writing things about the coming of Christ. Everything they were writing was pointing to Christ, and they didn't fully understand what they were writing, but they longed to know the thing they were pointing towards, that the Spirit of Christ had inspired them to write. This stuff in the Old Testament, it was pointing to Christ. That's the sum of the passage. Interestingly, Jesus says the very same thing. John chapter 5, Jesus is speaking to those religious leaders, the Pharisees, and He says this, John 5, 39, He says to them, You study the Scriptures diligently, because you think in them you have eternal life. These are the very Scriptures that testify about Me. Jesus here tells these Old Testament scholars, these men trained for years, in the Old Testament Scriptures, he says, you've missed it. This whole time you thought that by keeping these rules, you would find life. Actually, all of those passages, all that Scripture, they were pointing to me. So there's this doctrine here, this general principle that I want to lay out. The Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. This is key. So whenever we're in the Old Testament, we're looking for those those uh, those moments where we can see clearly how this is pointing us to Christ. It's all over the place. We've already seen it in our journey through the Psalms, that these Psalms are pointing to Christ. But maybe never more so than this morning. So we're taking this general principle that the Old Testament Scriptures are pointing to Christ. We're taking that and we're going to bring it in now. We're going to bring it in to our study of Psalm 15. Here we are. Psalm 15, if you have your Bible with you, you can follow along. Psalm 15, we'll pick up with verse 1. I'm reading out the New International Version. A Psalm of David. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? The one whose walk is blameless. Who does what is righteous who speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor, casts no slur on others, who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind, who lends money to the poor without interest, 
who does not accept a bride against the innocent, whoever does these things will never be shaken. That is a, that is a profound psalm. And I think what we will find is going to get us to Jesus. So right here, I want to imagine as we, as we just step into Psalm 15, I want to imagine that you and I are going to seminary. And we're in the classroom, the professor's up front, and we're studying Psalm 15. We're in a modern seminary where everybody's smart and intellectual with their PhDs and their Master's of Divinity. We are in the classroom to study the Scriptures deeply in this modern seminary. And the professor begins here by exploring the context of the passage. Like, exactly exactly, what's the context? This psalm is written uh, with what in view? And this professor might tell us that this psalm is trying to, trying to communicate exactly who can go into the temple. It's actually a, a, a psalm written much later than David. And that this psalm is written by priests, for priests, so priests will know how you need to prepare to come into the temple. I mean, literally, the structure of the temple. This is a way of teaching them how you prepare. And, and maybe that professor would say what another scholar in a, in a particular commentary has said about this passage. Here's what this, this commentator says. Psalm 15 may well represent a type of priestly teaching. Presented to those approaching the Temple Mount in Jerusalem to encourage them to prepare physically and spiritually for their access to the holy place for worship. And so this professor, setting the context that this is a way of go, uh, preparing to go into the temple, this, this, this structure in Jerusalem, you've got to make sure everything's right inside and you have everything uh, in order before you go into the temple, this professor might then begin to explore how this is a shift. For years in Israel's past, they learned about doing the right ritual. You have, to, you have to burn this fire in this place, kill this animal this way, blood here, not there. You better have all your rituals right. But, as some scholars will argue, there was a shift in the prophetic tradition where the rituals weren't nearly as important as making sure your heart was right. They might talk about it as having uh, your life ethically upright. So there's this shift from ritual to ethic. And maybe our professor would say it this way, as one commentator does. He says this, Psalm 15 gives descriptions that are given in ethical rather than ritual terms. This falls in line with prophetic religion that shifted the focus from ritual performance to ethical behavior. And then our professor, as we're, we're beginning to understand that this shift has its happening in Israel, as we're, as we're seeing maybe the layers of that shift, then that professor might put up, uh, put up a, a graph for us to see exactly how ethical this psalm is. There are 16, or six positive statements and five negative. Take a look. So just, let's just take a look at the, just the range of ethical commands here. Walk is blameless, does what is righteous, speaks the truth from the heart, despises a vile person, honors those who fear the Lord, and keeps an oath even when it hurts. Those are all positive uh, ethical characteristics. And then the negative. 
They utter no slander. This person does no wrong to a neighbor, casts no slur on others, does not lend his money with interest, does not accept a bribe against, uh, bribe against the innocent. Now, if you can do all those, if we can do all those, uh, this professor would tell us, if you can do all these, this is within the tradition of Israel, if you can do all of these, then you were able to go into the temple in Jerusalem and worship rightfully. That's what that professor might tell us. Here's the challenge. That professor would leave us with the conclusion that this psalm really is an instruction for you and for me and for anyone that's ever read it. The problem is this professor would see uh, the religion of the Bible as something that is shifting, that is really fundamentally something that is human in origin, and therefore it shifts and it moves, flexible, must be relevant. But the problem to be left with is our own life. How do you match up with that? I saw one person just now shaking their head. Yeah, if that's what you and I have to do to get into the presence of God, who can dwell with God? If that's what you need to do, we're all in trouble. Can you do this? I mean, I messed up this morning. And I was primarily by myself. This is the problem. Who can keep that? As insightful as a modern professor might be, the modern professor would miss that one glaring truth that both Peter and Jesus himself declares. That the Old Testament was written to point to Christ. And so I'm left standing at Psalm 15 saying... I hope someone can do that, because I know I can't. I hope someone can follow this list of negative and positive ethical characteristics, and maybe I can ride on their coattails into the dwelling of God. Because if it's up to me, I'm done. I will not be dwelling with God. If that's what it requires. This modern professor has left us short. This psalm points to Jesus. That's someone, that's someone that we just hope one day might show up that could do Psalm 15. That someone arrived and he actually did it. It's Jesus Christ. So I want to summarize it this way, just so we're concise. Summarize it this way. A bit of a longer summary, but it'll 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 uh, help us get down to the point. Um, let's go on. I wanna, I'm, gonna, I'm flipping it in my head. You didn't know that, Carol. Um, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Uh, go, go one more, and then we'll come backwards. No human being has ever lived the kind of life described in Psalm 15. Therefore, no human is worthy of dwelling with God. But in Christ, God in flesh, one human did obey the law perfectly. And He took on Himself the wrath we deserve so that we might be given His righteousness and therefore dwell with God forever. Psalm 15 points to Jesus. And you might say, well, where are you picking up this idea that, 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 that we really are that bad? I mean, maybe, I mean, surely we got some good in us, right? I mean, we got enough good that we might be able to get a toe, foot, maybe a bit of a whole leg into the dwelling of God. I mean, we, we're not all that bad. I want you to remember this is Psalm 15. In just one psalm prior, last week we looked at Psalm 14. And there, 
it's about as clear as you're going to get what's going on with me and you. We'll go back now. Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there's any who understand and who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There's no one who does good. Not even one. In case it wasn't clear, Isaiah 53, verse 6, first part of verse 6, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own thing. We just kind of want to be our own God. I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. I need to be authentic to who I am and how I feel. And so I don't need any boundaries. I, I know who I am. And I'll do what I want. And I don't need anyone telling me no. That's the way of every human heart. And so if that's the case, there's no way I'm getting into the presence of God. Where there is joy abounding, pleasures forevermore. Psalm 16, pleasures forevermore. The good news is that Jesus kept Psalm 15. And through Him, we take His record with us into the presence of God. Now, don't you know I'm not making this stuff up? I'm not that smart. Hebrews chapter 4, check this out. Hebrews 4. Now, I love it because the Bible just connects this stuff. Like, like it, it's just like it's ready-made to make the connections. And I just, it, it, to find them, it's like, man, this just has an internal logic built in. So, uh, Hebrews 4, the Hebrew writer writes this. We have a high priest. That's the one that's going to represent us to God. We have a high priest who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. You could also say he kept Psalm 15. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. You see the connection? You see, we got to get in the presence of God if you want joy. You want joy. Now, if you want joy here on earth, you're just going to always have to be grabbing for it because it never lasts forever. That's why they are paying billions of dollars to get, put commercials in front of your eyes. So that you always get the next thing. But with God, it is joy forever. It is His glory forever and ever. And we are most happy when He is glorified. We are built for it. And so here the Hebrew writer says, we have a representative. He did not sin. He kept Psalm 15. And then the logical conclusion is now you go into His throne with confidence. Who? Who could go into the dwelling of God? Not you. But Jesus can. And by faith, through His grace, you come with Him. And you do it with confidence. Timothy Keller, uh, we've, I've used him several times, quoted him several times. He's got a little devotional on the Psalms. On Psalm 15, he says this. He says this. No one but Jesus ever lived with perfect integrity. But because He is our Savior, we can go into God. Just real simple. Now, if this wasn't enough, this wasn't enough. Oh, if you could have, if you could have been inside my mind. Now, just for this moment, just this thing, I'm going to mind. You don't want to, you don't want there all the time, but just in this thing, when I, when I just came across these other two passages, I couldn't have written them any better. I mean, yes, but like I'm not inspired. I'm not in the infallible Word of God. Okay, we get all that. But like, even if I logically tried to work it out clearer, you're not going to get any clearer to connect the truth of Psalm 15. And Jesus as fulfillment with these two passages. Look at how they connect. 
We'll start with Colossians 1. This is Paul's letter to the Colossians. He says this, Once you were alienated from God. You were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight without blemish and free from accusation. Literally, we, people who do not walk blamelessly, who are not holy, through Christ we are presented to God the Father as holy without blemish. Literally, we are stamped with a Psalm 15 life, not because of our record, but because of the record of Christ. Literally carry His obedience, His Psalm 15 obedience. We carry it in with us. It is our past. Only by grace, through faith in Him. Here, Paul is so clear. You get to be presented holy. It's amazing. Because I know I'm not living like that. But through Christ, I get to carry His record. And then Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 8. We'll take an excerpt of these verses. Paul writes this. For He chose us. And where does He choose us, by the way? I, like you, don't, you don't get chosen because of your life. You get chosen in Him. Before the creation of the world, He chose you to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us for adoption of, to sonship through Jesus Christ. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He has lavished on us. You want all those good things. You want to come into the dwelling of God, live there forever, Redemption. You want to come in His sight holy without blemish. You're not going to get that if you're carrying your record. You're just not. You can't. You deserve His wrath. And yet, through Christ, we're lavished with grace. Now that just sounds foolish to those who can't see. I get that. That just sounds crazy. It sounds like God's just some mean tyrant. But to those who see clearly, those who have been regenerated in heart, there is no better news in the universe. You should feel the weight of Psalm 15. You are not that good. Which of us has never slurred another person or done a neighbor harm? Ah, but Christ, in Christ, you carry His record. You go into His presence, blameless, holy, without blemish. So you get to the end of your life and you're not asking, did I do enough? You get to the end of your life with confidence knowing to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's how you get that's how you get up to the end of your life. With joy and confidence. Okay. One other way to say it would be this, as we kind of close. If you have Christ, you carry his record of Psalm fifteen, that means you get to say, I will never be shaken. You can say that. Now, if this is your life, you can't say that. But whoever does these things, that is Christ. Christ will not be shaken. I'm in Christ. I will not be shaken. Man, that's good news. You show me who else in the world's making that promise. I don't care who's running for Congress this year. They're not making that kind of promise. And I don't care who's going to be president in 2024. They can't deliver on that promise. Nike can't deliver on it. 
LeBron James can't deliver on it. Matt Olson of the Braves can't, can't deliver on it. And he's hot right now. Um, if Mark was here, he would appreciate that. Although now he would say, I just, I just put the Braves on a, on a losing streak. It will not be. It will not be. Let's make some application. Let's just drive this down to some things right here where we live. Application number one. This one's going to get under someone's skin because this is pretty bold, right? We must see our sin for what it is. It is wrath-deserving, cosmic rebellion. It's nothing short of a rejection of God. Now, the reason I want to make this very clear because I think we have a problem with our sin. Let me say it this way, and I'm going to adapt a quote from a book, The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. I'm going to adapt the quote here, and I want, to, I want to put it in the context of Psalm 15. Here's the quote, again, just adapting it for Psalm 15. Nope, uh, do I have another one? Can, yes, this one. Psalm 15 is a mirror of true righteousness. When we set our works before this mirror, the reflection of it tells us all of our imperfections. You can't read Psalm 15 and walk away look, thinking, uh, feeling good about yourself. And, 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 I mean, seriously, whose tongue who utters no slander does no wrong to a neighbor? Who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from his heart, whose walk is blameless? Who does that? So when I put that as a mirror in front of my life, I, it, that's a weighty text. Because I know how bad I am. But the thing about sin, it's very deceptive. Very tricky. I got all kinds of ways of working around the weight of my sin. And so do you. In that same book, The Holiness of God, R.C. Sproul, what he does is he tries to put on display how us humans try to just downgrade our sin and also downgrade the holiness of God. These two quotes, I'm taking two quotes, I'm combining them into one. This right here got under my skin this week. Because as I read them, I thought, man, that's me. Man. Here it is. Here's what he says. And how tricky sin is. We also know that no one else keeps the great commandment either. What he's trying to say is, I know I don't keep it, and I know you don't either. No one else keeps it. Herein is our comfort. Nobody's perfect. We all fall short of perfect love for God, so why worry about it? If God punished everyone who failed to keep the great commandment, He'd have to punish everyone in the world. The test is too great. It's too demanding. It is not fair. God will have to judge us all on a curve. We are satisfied to think. Now, I want you to hear that. We are satisfied. We like to think this way. We are satisfied to think that God would compromise His own excellence and let us into heaven. After all, heaven, I love this thing. I'm sorry. I know what it's about to say. It made me laugh. After all, heaven would not be the marvelous place it was cracked up to be if we were excluded from it. Is that not how we think? Just deep down. God's got to let us in. What kind of place would it be if He didn't? God must grade on a curve. Boys will be boys. And God is big enough not to get all excited about a few moral blemishes. Is this not how we think? We think it's 
really not a big deal. We even come up with ways of talking about our sin. One of the biggest ones is this. It's just a what kind of lie? It's just a little white lie. No one got hurt. That's if your standard is one another. We're not dealing with how my life compares with James's life. We're dealing with how my life compares to the excellence, the, the, the moral perfection, the holiness of the God of the universe, whose intensity of love will not let any selfishness in. We're talking about that as the standard. And when you put that up as the standard, the weight of our rebellion is hell. But man, we get all tricky in our mind. It's not that bad. Surely he'll grade on a curve. I'm not the only one. Everyone else is doing it. And we fool ourselves. And many people in this world will one day be put into the presence of holiness. And they now will not be drawn in. They will be repelled. And all they will see is every fish that they try to justify their whole life. It is through Christ that all those blemishes are covered. But do you know what it's required to come to the cross? Do you know what the cross says to us? It says, you're not as good as you think you are. You actually need someone else to save you. And in a world where we think we're number one, it's really hard to be humble and come and be number two. But the cross says, you're always number two. Glory is always number one. That's where you'll be happiest. And the cross says your sin was of such enormity, it will be the death of the Son of God. I need the cross because the cross tells me who I am, but also tells me who He is and His love. But man, that takes humility to get there, and I need God to create that in me. There's one more thing. One more thing. Second thing. I don't want to leave us without this. The other thing I want you to walk away with is, if you're in Christ, you're secure under the protection of His righteousness. So, today when you say, man, I messed up, or your spouse tells you, you messed up, and you have to, you know, you're you're at least in a place to acknowledge it, and you say, man, what does that do with me and God? If you're in Christ, it does nothing to you and God. Because you're carrying His record. You're always carrying His record. You're secure with His record. You could take that to the bank. Paul understood that. A man who helped kill people, he knew that. It's why he wrote the inspired words in Romans 8. You know them well, I'm sure. He says this, For I am convinced, neither life nor death, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. That is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing's going to separate you. So when you come to the cross, you come secure. So no surprise, I think the next step coming out of Psalm 15, because Psalm 15 takes you to the cross, and that immense love. I think what we got to do is we do something related to the cross. Here it is. Here's your next step. Carry a cross this week. Or maybe set it somewhere where you'll see it. And two things going on here. When you see the cross, you remember your sin. Don't you downplay it. Don't don't say boys will be boys, girls will be girls, teenagers will be teenagers, everyone messes up. No. You see your sin for what it is when you see that cross. 
Jesus didn't die because boys are boys and girls are be girls. That's not why he died. He died because of cosmic rebellion had to be dealt with. But you remember your sin, but you never forget as you hold that cross or you look at it, God's lavish grace. Lavish grace. As your sin can never outpace God's grace. Isn't that good news? So here's what we're going to do when you come up for communion in just a moment. We actually have little metal crosses. Little metal, metal crosses. Pick one up. We've handed these out before. One other time, I know. Carry it with you. Put it in your wallet. Put it somewhere where you'll see it. And you remember your sin and remember God's grace. You can't keep Psalm 15. But Jesus did. And you get to carry His record for eternity. Man, there's no better news. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your immense grace. Thank You for Your lavish love in Christ. Now go with us as we move into the week. Thank You. Convict us of sin where we need it. But we carry Christ's record and that is great news. Remind us of that as we, as we come to the cross throughout the week. We pray that under Him who is our Lord and Savior and who happens to be the smartest person in the world, Jesus. And together we say,